church that I can um, uh, <clears throat> can think of. Alan, what's the date on the congregational meeting? We need to start announcing that. That's while he's uh, while he's doing that. Uh, the Chafer Conference is coming up March fourth through sixth, and the topic is on philosophy of ministry. Our keynote speaker is Scott Annual, who's um, teaching at uh, in the uh, at, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in their department related to music. This is his ex- area of expertise. As I was looking at going over the list of speakers that we have this year, I noticed that we're beginning to see a shift as we transition to a younger generation, which is a good thing. And I'm uh, glad to see some of the uh, younger uh, pastors starting to uh, get involved more. I remember the first time I gave a, a paper at one of these conferences, I think I was uh, 35 years old, just wet behind the ears, basically. And um, it's good to see that. David Roseland, pastor of Preston City Bible Church, is going to be speaking. Jeremy Thomas at Fredericksburg Bible Church. Uh, Andy Woods, who is has his... Uh, Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary and teaches at College of Biblical Studies is going to be uh, giving two different presentations. And uh, George Meisinger is going to be holding up for the, those of us who've had some uh, <clears throat> who are more seasoned. Uh, and then we're going to have some of the uh, more seasoned pastors on a, um, on a panel discussion. So uh, it's going to be good to see that. There needs to be opportunity to give these young pastors. A lot of them have uh, have really grown over the last uh, 10 years, and they have some uh, tremendous insights. They've been working hard, studying hard, and they do a tremendous, tremendous job uh, teaching, teaching the Word. So we are at a stage where we need to see this kind of transition to uh, younger generation. And so I'm really, really glad to see that. So we have that coming up. Anything else coming up? 24th, uh, put that on your calendar on, on <clears throat> Sunday, February 24th. We'll have our annual congregational meeting immediately following the uh, morning service that morning. And so that um, that is important for everyone who is a, a member of the congregation. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, take some time to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, ready to focus on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach us. Scripture says we need to be in fellowship, so we always need to make sure we keep short accounts, which means that we need to confess any known sin. And uh, when we confess, God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we have this opportunity to focus and study your word, that it's your word that is a, uh, it refreshes us, it is your word that encourages us, 
And it is your word that gives us the insight, the light that we need to be able to understand life. Father, as we live in the devil's world, there is so much that goes on around us that seems chaotic, that is chaotic. And sometimes we just feel at a loss. It's many different uh, reasons to generate anxiety or fear or worry about the future. But we know that we can relax and that if we put, cast our care upon you because you care for us. Father, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us, and especially as we study tonight as Paul and Barnabas embark on their first missionary journey that we might gain great insight into the importance of evangelism and missions and how um, and the courage that comes from just walking with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Eddie, I'm going to throw you a curve. We're going to see if we can put a sound while I... Started, when I started praying, I remembered that there was something else I wanted to do tonight. Somebody sent me something today via email that was uh, absolutely uh, brilliant. I don't know who did this, but I am going to back this thing up. And this was, I just thought, I just wish that we had something quite this creative. Let me... Um, Move this over here, and we're going to show this little YouTube video. I sh- should have done this. This is a, uh... are we ready? I'm plugged in here. You're going to have the sound up. <coughs> See if we get sound when this starts. Welcome. Turn it up. And thank you for worshiping with us today. For the consideration of those around you. Kindly turn off all cell phone, electronic, and messaging devices at this time. If your device should go off during announcements today, in addition to your regular offering, you will be fined $25. Should your device go off during prayer concerns, the fine will increase to $50. If your device goes off during our sermon today, you're going to hell. Remember, God wants your complete attention. Thank you, and enjoy the service. Westminster Presbyterian Church in Burbank. Sunday services at 9 and 10.30. No shoes, no shirt, no service. I just thought that was just too good not to share. Watch watch everybody's face when... That guy blew up. That was tremendous. Okay, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Tonight we're looking at Paul's approach in the first missionary journey as they left Antioch and proceed to Cyprus and then from there into the southern uh, part of what is now Turkey, but at that time was known by various different names, such as Pisidia and Pamphylia, Cappadocia, the different regions within uh, what is now modern Turkey. So it, we see his methodology was to go to the Jew first. Just a reminder of what we did la- covered last week. Now, <clears throat> the chapter begins now in the church in Antioch. Antioch is a major city, just about 25 miles or so inland uh, from the port uh, on the Mediterranean Sea in what is now Syria. 
So at the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Now, this refers to a New Testament gift of prophet, as I pointed out last time. And I want to remind you that you will hear, perhaps, different people try to define the New Testament gift of prophet in other ways other than scriptural. They're often said, this is a pastor, this is a preacher, this is preaching rather than teaching. There's a lot of foolishness that goes on about this. But the prophet, uh, if, if you were familiar with the Old Testament and you had people with the gift of prophecy in 48 A.D., you would assume that it had continuity and similarity with the Old Testament gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy was not necessarily a gift that was simply foretelling the future. It was a gift whereby someone pronounced or proclaimed something uh, via direct revelation from God. And usually in the Old Testament, it had to do with pressing some sort of claim from God in reference to obedience or disobedience to Israel. Often it was part of what was called a reeve, uh, in the Hebrew reeve lawsuit, where the prophet was sort of the prosecuting attorney from God, uh, challenging the Jewish people to because they've been disobedient. But at another level, it is a revelatory gift. So at Antioch, they had these leaders, some had the gift of New Testament gift of prophecy, which was a temporary gift, and it ended before uh, the end of the apostolic age with the closing of the canon. Uh, There was no longer a need for revelation. And teachers, teachers were those who gave instruction from the Word of God, taught what the Word of God said, and helped the people understand how to apply it. Then they were listed, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, who was obviously from uh, dark-skinned and from Africa, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so just a note about Saul, through this section, uh, we see the beginning of this section where Saul of Tarsus is referred to by his Hebrew name. This was his uh, praenomen, which was his first, uh, Saul was his first name. It's from the Hebrew word Shaul, uh, which derives from a verb in Hebrew meaning to ask or, or to uh, hear uh, or to listen. And <clears throat> But it had a similar sounding Word, there was a similar sounding word in Greek, uh, solos, S-A-U-L-O-S. And part of the problem was that I, I'm sure that there were uh, <clears throat> maybe some uh, teasing or some uh, uh, joking that went along because the uh, Greek word solos, the Greek adjective, described a particular way of walking. Now, you can all picture this, so I'm not going to elaborate too much, but it described a certain sort of gait or carriage by a certain kind of person. One type of person was the kind of gait or carriage, seductive gait or carriage or walking of a loose, wanton uh, prostitute or courtesan. And it also applied to effeminate males. So for Shaul of Tarsus to be referred to in Greek-speaking 
areas as Salas was not really the best thing. So it's probably a good idea that he decide to change his name to his Roman cognomen, which is also uh, sort of a nickname, but it can also be a family name. And that was the name Paulus, which means little or small. And so that would uh, apply in terms of the humility that Paul had uh, under the authority of God. So he is still referred to at the beginning of this chapter uh, via his name, uh, Saul, but that <clears throat> is changed as we go through the chapter. Uh, we see him uh, shifting uh, to his name, Paul, by chapter by verse 13. He's referred by Paul for the rest of this, uh, this book. We're told that they ministered to the Lord. I pointed out last time this was a phrase that was frequently used of the priests and the, the high priest serving in the temple and leading in prayer, coming before the, uh, coming before God as a group in, in, in prayer and representing the nation. So they're ministering to the Lord and they fasted. Now I covered the whole doctrine of fasting last time. Uh, pointing out that nowhere is this commanded. The first time we see anyone go without food for a lengthy period of time in a spiritual situation is Moses on Mount Sinai. There are subsequent times when there is fasting during times of intense emotion. And as I pointed out, uh, this is all voluntary. It was not ever mandated either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. It was a custom associated with uh, usually seeking the Lord uh, in times of intense uh, pain, sorrow, grief, military uh, conquest, uh, something like that. And it had to do with the fact that people just were too focused on the problem to worry about the day-to-day details of life. And eating wasn't simple. You just didn't go down to the McDonald's and grab a, a Happy Meal and go eat dinner on the way back and then continue with your life. It took hours of time to go through food preparation, uh, just acquiring the food, and then food preparation, cooking, cleaning up, things of that uh, in a pre-industrial society. And so that, that was a tremendous distraction from, from prayer. So um, fasting is not something that makes someone super spiritual, and the Lord said that if you fast, you should not let anybody know about it or they shouldn't observe it in your demeanor or anything of that nature. And in the middle of this, as they're praying and uh, uh, ministering before the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And I think that this is most likely in context through one of those who had the gift of prophecy. It's clear that this is not a nonverbal indication. This is a specific verbal indication. And since they had the Apostle Paul was there, they had an apostle there, and Ephesians 2.21 says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. This was within the early church. You had this, this group of individuals who are gifted in re- with reference to divine revelation to act as a check and balance against just anyone coming along and saying, well, the Lord told me we ought to do this. And they were the ones who were the authoritative check. So you have uh, the Apostle Paul here. You have a couple with the gift of prophecy, and it would be through those uh, individuals that the Holy Spirit uh, spoke. And the Holy Spirit is the, I want you to note this, that the Holy Spirit here is the uh, one who speaks, who is said to be the communicator. 
And what he says is really related back to the call of, of uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, the call of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord indicated that it would be his mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the Holy Spirit says, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So you have specific divine guidance here. Now, God doesn't give this kind of guidance today, as I've pointed out when I've taught on divine guidance in the past, because we no longer live in an era of special revelation. Special revelation ceased when the canon of Scripture closed, when the 66 books of the Scripture, uh, the uh, 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books were completed, when the the Apostle John finished the book of Revelation, that ended the period, the revelatory period. The Lord has given us the instruction book, as it were, and the issue now is not to go and <clears throat> contemplate your navel or go out in the wilderness and fast or go through any of these other ascetic practices that are uh, that have been popular in centuries past and are being repopularized uh, today. The issue is go to the Word of God, think about it, meditate on it, pray, study the Word, and God, that the Lord gives you guidance through the Word. That is how he uh, speaks to us uh, today. <clears throat> now, what they're going to do in verse <clears throat> 3, uh, in verse 4, they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. This refers to back to this event, and they're going to leave Antioch, uh, here and go south and west, just a little bit west of due south to uh, Seleucia, which is the port on the Mediterranean. And from there they will sail across to Salamis in uh, Cyprus, which is approximately uh, 90 miles. Uh, Cyprus is a <coughs> large island, one of three large islands in the Mediterranean, it's the third largest island, rather, in the Mediterranean. It's about 50 miles south of uh, what is now modern Turkey. It is uh, 90 miles west of Syria, and the island itself is approximately 140 miles long and 40 miles wide. The largest city is the city they went to first, Salamis, on the uh, east coast, and then they went to Paphos on the southwest uh, coast, and that was the capital of the uh, Roman province. And that they're going to focus on the large urban areas where most of the people are. As I pointed out, um, they, they sent by the Holy Spirit, verse 4. And what we learn there is it's interesting. This is a aorist uh, passive participle, which means the action is being... Uh, uh, the, the the main verbal idea of the uh, people are being acted upon by someone. Now, what's interesting in the English, if you look at that, you would think that it is <clears throat> it would indicate means. It's no different from saying walk by means of the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, right? See, in English, this we we have a hard time with this these prepositions coming over from Greek. But it's not talking about the Holy Spirit operating as the means or the instrument of their sending in a grammatical sense. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, the preposition that's used here is the preposition hupa, 
And in Greek, the preposition hupa always indicates the one who performs the action. When you move from a an active voice mood, for example, if you were to say, John hit the ball. John is the grammatical subject. John performs the action of hitting the ball. If you switch it to a passive construction, we would say the ball was hit by John. And we get it confused in English because the by John can indicate different things in Greek, uh, what, the, what the original is. But the way it differentiates in Greek, if you're indicating the subject or the agent who performs the action, it doesn't use the uh, in preposition, meaning by or by means of. It uses hupa, uh, which is a preposition here, to indicate the one who actually does performs the action of the, of, of the verb. So the sent out is the Holy Spirit sends them out. He's not, this isn't a means or instrument thing. It's the Holy, it's what, just the reverse of what we saw in verse 2. The Holy Spirit told them to go. And all they're saying here is after the Holy Spirit uh, told them to go or after the Holy Spirit sent them out, directed them to leave, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed uh, to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is, as I pointed out, the third largest island in the Mediterranean. And it has some significance for uh, biblical studies. Barnabas was uh, from uh, Cyprus. He was uh, a Levite, and there's some indication that he may have left uh, uh, Judea as a Christian uh, during some of the earlier persecutions, or he may have just uh, been uh, a Levite uh, in the diaspora and has, may have returned to Jerusalem where he learned about Jesus when he was serving in the temple once he was 30 years of age and then became a Christian. That's probably the most likely explanation. Um, there was another early disciple who lived in Jerusalem. Uh, later he uh, hosted the Apostle Paul and his companions from Caesarea in Acts 21, verse 16. But Luke also mentions that there were a number of unnamed uh, believers from Jerusalem who early on left Jerusalem and took the gospel to Cyprus. So the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are not the first to bring the gospel to Cyprus. In Acts 11:19, we're told now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, that would be modern Lebanon, Cyprus, the island we're talking about, and Antioch. So these were, uh, those among this group established the church in Antioch, were among the first to really get that established and developing, and that was back in about 35 A.D. So this is now 48 so 13 years has transpired since Acts chapter 11:19, and the congregation in Antioch is well established. So they come to uh, Cyprus, and they come to uh, Salamis, and where they run into two rather uh, interesting individuals. We're told in verse 5 that when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And this is the act of making an announcement, making a pronouncement. It is not the normal word for either preaching 
or the word for evangelism. It is simply the word katangelion, uh, which means to, or katangelazo, which means to um, just proclaim something, to announce something. So they preached the word of God, and where did they go first? They went to the synagogues of the Jews. Now, we need to understand just a little bit about the synagogue. What exactly is a synagogue, and how did a synagogue function then? And it doesn't, it functions differently now depending on which sect of, uh, of Jews you're in, whether you're Reformed, Reconstructionist, Orthodox, or, um, or Conservative. Uh, Orthodox are the only ones who are comparable to our understanding of historic Judaism. I believe orthodoxy is the natural development of Pharisaical theology because after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, when everything was, was scattered, the people were scattered, everything was chaos, the only people who had a unity who came together and tried to uh, establish the parameters for a post-temple Judaism were the Pharisees. And their most noted council was at Yamnia, which occurred in approximately uh, 90 uh, A.D. And so that's, they, they established various uh, protocols uh, for the synagogue. But the synagogue had already been in existence um, for, for many years. The actual origins of the synagogue are somewhat debated. According to the Encyclopedia of Judaism, there really isn't unanimity among scholars on the origin of the synagogue. There are some traditions that connect its founding with Ezra after the return from the exile of a a number of Jews, as mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. So this would be a post exilic development of the synagogue. Uh, Others argue that it developed during the exile as there were different uh, pockets of Jews uh, scattered around not only in Babylon but also in Egypt and in um, what is now uh, Turkey, those areas, and that they they were uh, originated, and this is true, they originated as houses of prayer. But we're not sure exactly... um, when they developed as houses of prayer. Was this uh, during the exile or uh, after the exile? Because you not only had synagogues develop outside of the land, but you also had synagogues develop uh, in uh, Judea and in Galilee. Now, there were quite a few synagogues, and we know that Jesus spoke in synagogues in um, uh, uh, Capernaum, in fact, those who've gone to Israel with me have been to the synagogue there in Capernaum. It's not; it's on the side of the one where, where Jesus spoke, but that one was destroyed, and the one that's uh, the ruins that we see there are from approximately a century uh, later. But these were the places where, which were the center of Jewish uh, community life and Jewish uh, so- social life. They, as they originally developed, the focus was on a place to gather for prayer. In fact, they were often referred to as as houses of prayer, uh, referenced by the Greek word pros UK, indicating uh, prayer. Um, There are several examples that we have from a period prior to the New Testament from Greek inscriptions 
on uh, ancient synagogues that have that, whose ruins have been discovered. Uh, one example is from the second or possibly first century BC. There's a Greek inscription from ancient uh, Athribis, about 150 uh, kilometers or so southeast of Alexandria in Egypt, which reads, "On behalf of King Ptolemy and Queen Cleopatra, Ptolemy, uh, the son of Ephchidides, chief of police, and the Jews in Athribis, dedicated the place of prayer. That would be the synagogue, the title for the synagogue, to the Most High God." And there were a number of others. There's a large number of these inscriptions that have been found in different locations in Egypt because there was a large Jewish community there, as well as in, uh, in areas in Babylon and in Asia Minor. <clears throat> Basically, the synagogue service was focused on prayer initially, and then they added to that the reading of the Torah. And the reading of the Torah in Babylon was on an annual cycle, which is what we find today in the modern practice, where they have a series of readings. They've divided the uh, Torah up into basically 52 uh, divisions, and they every synagogue reads from the same divisions every uh, every Shabbat. Uh, at the early uh, period here, there were the the influence out of uh, the area of Judea and Galilee was that uh, the law and the prophets were divided into a three-year cycle, and they would read through on a three-year period. They would stand up, and as Jesus did in the synagogue of Capernaum, stand up and read from the designated reading for that uh, that particular day. Uh, New Testament references regarding uh, Jesus in the synagogue and the Gospels, the Apostle Paul in Acts and Apollos, show that uh, the typical synagogue uh, setting involved teaching. It also involved discussion, uh, question and answer, and debate, all part of the, uh, of the format. Prayers were very much a part of the, of the service. They would usually begin reciting uh, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is... One, or as it's translated in the uh, <clears throat> Tanakh from 1985, uh, the Lord, our, the Lord our, is our God, the Lord alone, and that's the more correct translation. It's not emphasizing the indivisible unity of God; it's emphasizing His singularity and exclusiveness over against all of the other gods in the polytheistic religions uh, around them. Uh, another prayer that would follow the Shema is called the Amidah, also known as the 18 uh, Blessings. And this is very typical today. It's called the Amidah from the Hebrew word Amad, which means to stand up. And so they all stand up. And this is typical. I've been involved in uh, synagogue services before where we uh, stand up and recite these 18 uh, Blessings. The synagogue, as I stated earlier, is a place of community. This is the center of Jewish uh, communal and social life. It's not a place of sacrifice. It wasn't uh, a replacement for the temple uh, in Jerusalem, but in the diaspora, it is a place where Jews could come together, where they could study Torah, where they could learn, where they could hear news about what was going on in Jewish communities around the world and back in, in Judea as well.
and it eventually came to embrace an extremely wide range of religious activities, including the singing of hymns and sermons and the reading of religious, uh, religious poetry. As they preached the word, here I have the slide for Katangelo, they, uh, <clears throat> they preached the word, which simply means they began to announce it or declare it, and we see the content of that as we go through this particular chapter. Now, this is the beginning of the first missionary journey, and this is a, in this slide, I listed the, all of the places that they go to on this, uh, on this journey. They start in Antioch of Syria, Acts 13, 1 through 3. They go to the port of Seleucia in Acts 13, 4, and then they go to Salamis in Cyprus in Acts 13, 5, then to Paphos in Acts 13, 6 through 12. Where's all the action? It's in Paphos. Look at, you have six verses, seven verses on uh, Paphos. Then they go to Perga in Pamphylia, across the Med North into south-central Turkey. I'll go to Perga. Then Pisidian Antioch. Look how many verses are devoted to Pisidian Antioch. What is the Holy Spirit emphasizing in this? It's what happened in Pisidian Antioch. And then they go to Iconium. That's covered in one verse. Then to Lystra. Notice that's from chapter, uh, Acts 14, 6 through 20. So again, another major emphasis in that location. Then to Derby then back to Lystra, back to Iconium, and back to Pisidian Antioch. Notice all of those are in 1421. So this is just a summary uh, rehearsal. They went and established churches in these three uh, cities, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, and then they reverse course and go back and check on everybody and appoint leaders on their way back. Then they went back to uh, Pisidian Antioch, and to, then they traveled down to Pamphylia, and to Perga, and then reverse course and went home to Antioch. So that's the first missionary journey as we, um, as we go forward. Now, I knew I had this. It slipped out of order. Uh, this is a uh, depiction of Moses reading the law that's uh, on one of the murals at a synagogue in Dura Europus. Uh, it's, they have Moses dressed in, in typical Greco-Roman uh, attire at that particular time, and he ho- is holding open a Torah scroll, where by this time reading the Torah had become an essential part of uh, synagogue worship. And a lot of what you have in synagogues and, and churches as they develop during this early Middle Age period is the, with the stained glass uh, art in the stained glass and also paintings. Is these are the visual aids that are put up to help teach the content of the Word of God and to remind people of uh, what the Word of God, uh, what the Word of God's taught. So let's look at our, <clears throat> back at our text and see what, what transpires. So they, they come to um, Salamis in verse 5. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, I think contextually that what's going on here is that they are uh, they're announcing the gospel they're explaining who Jesus Christ who Jesus of Nazareth is as the Messiah and we're going to see that spelled out in the message that uh, Paul gives when we get to uh, um, uh, the the next section of this chapter when he goes to uh, the other Antioch Antioch in uh, Pisidia 
But here they run into a couple of, of interesting individuals. Uh, after they leave Salamis, uh, taking along John, this is young John Mark, the young cousin of Barnabas, and uh, later the author of the Gospel of Mark. They say when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. They find a good guy and a bad guy when they get to Paphos. The good guy is going to be the proconsul. The bad guy is this uh, sorcerer, this person who's influenced by demonism. He's a false prophet. He's Jewish, and his name is Bar-Jesus or Bar-Jesus in, in uh Greek or in Aramaic, it would be Bar Yeshua. Yeshua, the Aramaic name of Jesus, was a very common name. It's built. It's the name of Joshua. This was an extremely popular name at the time of Jesus in the in the first century. Uh, the B A R at the beginning is Aramaic for son of. So he's just has this name, son of Joshua. And I don't, the text does not make any indication that this name has anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. As I said, Joshua or Yehoshua or Yeshua was a very common name among Jews at this particular time. But he is identified as a false prophet and he's clearly involved in demonism. And he is uh, close to. Uh, position of power and uh, influential with the proconsul uh, Sergius Paulus. Now, Sergius Paulus shares the uh, same cognomen or second name as the Apostle Paul, and that he is called a proconsul indicates that this is a province. Cyprus was a province uh, directly under the authority of the Roman Senate. Uh, Therefore, it was not governed by a prefect or a procurator. It's directly controlled by the Roman Senate. So he is a position. He is an individual of uh, tremendous influence and authority because he represents the Senate of Rome. Interestingly, archaeologists have found a first-century inscription dating from around 52 to 53 A.D. Uh, on Cyprus that mentions Sergius Paulus as the proconsul. So this is an inscription from approximately five years after the time the Apostle Paul was there on on Cyprus. So this just, again, indicates that the Bible is filled with all these little details that can be substantiated circumstantially, can be substantiated uh, through archaeology. So Luke tells us that uh, Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. He is a he wants to sit down and understand what it is that they are uh, proclaiming and why. And so we're told that um, he wants to sit down. This uh, man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But there's a spiritual battle taking place because Elymas the sorcerer. Uh, this is his the translation of his name, uh, Bar, Bar Jesus, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, there's a lot of similarities here between this confrontation between Saul and uh, Elymas and the confrontation between uh, Peter uh, earlier uh, in Acts with some of the those who opposed him. 
So Saul, who is called Paul, this is where we make the transition to Paul's name, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is not the filling of the Spirit that we talk about in terms of the command in Ephesians 5.18 to be uh, filled by means of the Spirit. It is a different verb, and it is not a filled by means of the Spirit. It's not using the preposition in plus a dative. It's using a genitive construction, and it indicates someone who is uh, spiritually guided, directly guided by the Holy Spirit. He is full of the Holy Spirit. It's not a sanctification methodology that's being referred to here. It is something that is uh, uh, usually, as I pointed out when we studied this in the past, that almost every time, in fact, I went through it, every time you find this phrase, it is followed by someone speaking or saying something or on a couple of cases, engaging in some action that is uh, the result of this revelatory type of ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it's this is not a term related to spiritual growth and Ephesians 5.18. So the Apostle Paul is now being, uh, I think, overshadowed by God the Holy Spirit, uh, just as he would be later on when he wrote Scripture, uh, guided and directed in a special way by the Holy Spirit, he looks directly at Elymas, and he says, now here's the interesting contrast. There, there's kind of a uh, an interesting play on words here between Paul, who's full of the Holy Spirit, and Elymas, who is full of all deceit and all fraud. It's the same grammatical construction and same word for full, pimplemi, that you have in verse um, in verse 9. So in contrast to the to Paul, who is being led and guided and, overpa- and, and empowered by God the Holy Spirit in a distinct revelatory way, uh, the uh, Elymas is full of deceit and all fraud. This is an expressing his character. As well, he is motivated and guided and directed by deceit and fraud. And Paul addresses him straight on. He doesn't mince words. He just speaks the truth. He says, oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, not bar, uh, bar Yahshua, but bar Diabolos, son of the devil. You son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? So Elymas has directly set himself up as an opponent of the gospel and an opponent of God, and he is clearly uh, in league with demonic forces. Whether he is just, uh, whether he's demon possessed or demon influenced, we don't know. Uh, at the very least, he is demon-influenced, and he is listening to and, and purporting the doctrines of demons, he, which means he has rejected the truth of God's word, and he is promoting uh, false doctrine. He is an enemy of righteousness, and he perverts the truth. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 11, And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind. And so there is a miracle that occurs showing the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than whatever power Elymas can call upon. 
uh, demonic power that he can call upon. And the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeking, seeing the sun for a time. So it wasn't going to be permanent, just temporary. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now the result of this is that the proconsul believed. Now, there have been some that have come along. There was a man, a pastor by the name of John Wimber back in the 70s who went through various passages of Scripture and said, oh, well, this is what's wrong with the church today. We don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to heal people and to perform miracles, and so we need to go back to what the apostles did and have what he called power evangelism. The only problem with that is there are numerous examples in Scripture where there were miracles performed, the miracles of Jesus, that didn't convince a lot of people. Because the ultimate issue is not uh, an intellectual issue. It doesn't have anything to do with seeing signs and wonders. Those are evidences, but they are not. They do not overwhelmingly convince people because there were uh, tens of thousands of Jews in Judea at the time of Christ who witnessed those miracles and they just explained them away because the core issue was they rejected God and it didn't matter uh, how much how many facts they saw it didn't matter what miracles they saw uh, they rejected it so this whole idea that well if we just had miracles today like they had in Jesus time uh, people would change no they wouldn't they didn't change then and they're not going to change now it's a matter of volition and a matter of a person's uh, desire to uh, know God. So the proconsul obviously had positive volition, and he then believes the gospel. And notice that's all he does. It says the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It is his response to the teaching of the Lord that generates his belief because he understood the gospel. And so the issue that we have to understand is that it is the content of the word of God and the teaching and instruction from the word of God that is what changes people's lives under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, having completed their time in um, in Paphos, Paul and his party then set sail in verse 13 and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. So let me uh, get a map back up here. We're going to go back and look at our location and see where uh, th- this is located. Here we have Paphos here. They set sail, and they're going to head up to the uh, region of Pamphylia here uh, in the north, and they're going to head to uh, Paphos, or excuse me, they're going to head to Perga in Pamphylia. Uh, Perga is located, it's not on this map, and, but it's located somewhere along this uh, s- southern coast of Turkey here, and they're going to go from Perga up to Antioch and Pisidia, and then they'll go to Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and then he reverses course back this way. Uh, but that shows you the general geographic area where uh, their ministry takes place. So verse 13, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John departed from them. Notice Luke doesn't seem to make a very big deal out of what happens here that John leaves. Later on, we learn that John leaves because he can't hack it. 
Uh, it's rugged traveling. There's opposition. It's difficult, and he's too young, and he just hasn't uh, what it takes to stay with Paul and Barnabas. And later on, this is going to cause a split between Paul and Barnabas. And Bar- when, when Paul gets ready to go on his second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take Paul with him. John, I mean, uh, Barnabas wants to take John, uh, John Mark with him. And Paul says, no, I'm not taking him with me ever again. And so uh, Barnabas and John Mark went their way, and Paul went on his second missionary journey. Now, later on, we discovered that uh, John Mark, after he matured, uh, he and uh, Paul became very close, and the Apostle Paul became dependent upon him. And in Second uh, Timothy, uh, he requests uh, John Mark to bring him some of his possessions. So uh, this will eventually change. But at this stage, uh, Paul is showing that he just doesn't want to put up with somebody who can't cut it. And so he's not ready to be patient with some uh, young kid who's just not ready to uh, take on the rigors of the travel. And if you walk along the um, the basic Roman highways of the time and realize what Paul did and how he traveled and his, his pretty Spartan existence, uh, you had to be pretty tough to keep up with him. So in verse 13, we read that they, they, that John departs from them and goes back to Jerusalem. We're told in verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So Antioch is is up here, and it is not actually in Pisidia, but it is close to the border of, of, of uh, Pisidia up here. It's actually in Phrygia, but because it was so close to the border, it was always referred to as uh, being in Pisidia and called Pisidian Antioch. Um, they go into the synagogue. This is Paul's pattern. It's Romans chapter 1, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so he always makes this a pattern. This is God's uh, divine pattern for Paul. Take the gospel to the Jews first. Why? Remember the focal point of, of, of Acts from the very beginning is this command to the Jews to repent and to turn back to God and the times of refreshing will come, as the apostle uh, Peter said in his second sermon in Acts chapter 3. And so there's still that offer of the kingdom going out to the Jews, the offer of the Messiah, hoping that there would be a turning uh, to the Messiah among the Jewish people. So they go to the synagogue on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day, and they sat down. And so as after the reading of the law, remember, as I said, the typical procedure would be to have the opening prayer, the Shema, and then the Amidah, the 18 blessings, and then there would be reading of the Torah, and also the, uh, there would also be a complimentary passage read from, what, from, the, apostle, or excuse me, from the prophets and the uh, writings, which is called the Haftarah. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the Haftarah, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, and that word, uh, uh, parakaleo, has to do with a challenge uh, to the people, say on. This would be the opportunity uh, given to them. It was typical when uh, learned men, learned Jews came in, and Paul, of course, would have been a, uh, treated as a rabbi. 
that to ask them to give some short message to the congregation. And so Paul stood up, he motions with his hand, and I've heard one Jewish commentator said he had to motion with his hand. He's Jewish. Jews can't talk without using both hands. So he stood up, he motioned with his hand, and he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Now the men of Israel is addressing the Israelites. Those who fear God would be the Gentiles who were the God-fearers. Remember I talked about the fact that there were three different groups of Gentiles. There were the uh, God-fearers, the proselytes at the gate, and the full proselytes. And so these would would include all of the Gentiles who were uh, in some some arena were transitioning towards uh, Judaism and seeking the truth in Judaism. And so he addresses them, and he said that, says in verse 17, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it, that is, out of, um, out of Egypt. Now, in this section... In this sermon, Paul has basically three points that he's going to make. And in this, he is going to brilliantly summarize uh, several hundred or thousand years of Jewish history and six or seven books of the Bible just very briefly. It shows his, his complete grasp and understanding of the, uh, of, of the Old Testament to synthesize it to hit uh, the main points. His first main point is that God sovereignly chose the Jewish patriarchs. This wasn't, they didn't come into existence like any other nation, but God sovereignly chose Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and made a covenant, an eternal and unconditional covenant with them as seen in Genesis 12, 1 through 7, uh, Genesis 13, 14 through 17, and specifically Genesis 15, 1 through 21, in Genesis 17, 1 through 12, those are the key central passages on the Abrahamic covenant, that God entered into this legal contract, unconditional and eternal, with their fathers. So the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, that would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and exalted the people when they dwelt in the land, as strangers in the lands of Egypt. So we just summarized the last half of Genesis and the first half of, of Exodus. And then with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it, out of um, Egypt. And so this refers to all of the events in the Exodus event. It is God who is the one who did these things and exalted the people and brought them out of slavery. In verse 18... He goes on to say, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. So now he's reminding them that the, that, that Exodus generation wasn't chosen and delivered because they were so wonderful. They were, they were grumblers. They were complainers. They constantly revolted against Moses. They revolted against God in the wilderness. And yet, nevertheless, God continued to work with them. And so what we see here is the ultimate a hero in the whole story is the God of this people, Israel, mentioned in verse 17. Uh, <clears throat> they continue to revolt against him, but he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So now in three verses, we've covered Genesis, Exodus, 
uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. So he's just synthesized all of that to make the point that God is the one who controlled the history of, of Israel. And then verse 20, he states, After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Now, there's a, a lot of uh, discussion about the chronology there. The best way, I think, to understand this is that he, Paul is saying that all these historical events took place in a period of about 450 years. That would include the four centuries during which time the Israelites were in Egypt from 1846 when they first go to Egypt with Jacob and Joseph through the Exodus event in 1446, so that's 400 years. Then you add to that 40 years in the wilderness, takes you up to 1406 B.C., and then seven more years under Joshua's leadership to conquer the land. That takes you up to 1399 B.C., which is 447 years. That's rounded off to 450 years. So he is speaking uh, in terms of generalities, making rounding the number up to 450 years until uh, Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So the first thing he emphasized is God entered into a covenant. He called out the, the people of uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, making them a unique people. And no matter how badly they failed, God continued to be faithful to his promise and faithful to his covenant. Now, once that period of discipline ended with the wilderness, God then provided them with a king, verse 21. Afterward, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. That was a lesson in what you don't want because Saul was disobedient to God and brought divine judgment upon them. So sometimes we get the leaders we deserve because God's trying to teach us what we don't want, if some people would only listen. Verse 22, we read, And when he had removed him, that is, when God had removed notice God is the one who's performing all of the action. He's the one ultimately overseeing Israel's history. When he had removed him, he raised up for them David as a king, the grace of God, that is, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Now, did God make a mistake? Because David surely sinned. But see, when God says that, he's not saying that David's not a sinner anymore. He's saying David is a man whose basic heart orientation, whose basic volitional orientation is to do what God wants him to do. Sure, he's going to fail. Sure, we're going to fail, but can it be said of us that our primary motivation in life is to do what God wants us to do and to serve him? We're going to fail, but is that our primary motivation? And that's what it was with, with David. He desired above all things uh, to serve God. That's what he means by a man after his own heart. And then after these verses of summary, bringing everything up to the present, Paul says, from this man's seed, that is from this man's uh, lineage, 
according to the promise, that is the Davidic covenant. So he's gone from the Abrahamic covenant and skipped over a lot to end up on the Davidic covenant, tying the two together. God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had first preached, and then he jumps right into John the Baptist and the New Testament. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And then in verse 25, and I want to stop there because we have a good break as we get to verse 26. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy uh, to loosen. So here we see the, the lead up to the gospel. I want you to notice how does Paul approach the gospel? Who's his audience? It's Jews who are knowledgeable of the Old Testament. That's why he can summarize all of the Old Testament in just a few short sentences because his audience knows all the details and knows all the facts. All he's doing is he's picking the high points so that he can weave it together to make his main point, which is uh, what he is about to do starting in verse 26. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is when we get to the next chapter, in chapter 14, and we see Paul's uh, another approach in his presentation of the gospel, he has a completely different audience, an audience that has no background in the Bible whatsoever, doesn't know uh, Jesus from Bar-Jesus, and he starts at a different place and has a different approach. And that means that you don't, when you're presenting the gospel, it's not one-size-fits-all, you have to understand who you're talking to, start with where they are with their frame of reference, and then take them from that point uh, to, to an understanding of the gospel. So we'll come back next time and continue analyzing Paul's message in Antioch in verse 25. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus on these things, to be reminded of this uh, passionate zeal that was... Uh, characterize the early church to take the gospel throughout the known world. Uh, this zeal for evangelism has uh, increased and decreased throughout the course of the history of Christianity. And we desire to be people who uh, are known for uh, proclaiming the gospel to those around us, to those we have an opportunity that we might uh, give them the opportunity to have eternal life and to know the truth of the uh, Word of God. Father, we pray that you would give us a passion to do that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.